Good morning to you all. My name is Steve Yates. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at InTown, and I am also very honored to be able to open God's Word with you this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. We've been using that word a lot. I want to kind of go a little bit deeper in a definition. Advent is simply a word that means coming. We've had that theme already running throughout our service, and it's this period of time where in the Christian church, we find a solidarity with the Old Testament Israelites. They were waiting, they were longing for the coming of the Messiah. And we know that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And yet we also still see the brokenness of our world. We feel its effects and we long for him to come back. So there's that element of being able to look back and look forward. And so it means this is not a a mournful season where we are not allowed to be happy until Christmas Day or something like that. But it does mean that we have kind of both themes, both emotions, celebration of what has come, who has come in Jesus, and also a longing for him to come back and to finish what he started. And so we can hold both of those together at once, and that's what it means to celebrate Advent. With that, we normally have an Advent series, and like every other year, we're going to start a new series for our Advent season today, and we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. Now, this is a little strange. It's not a normal book for Advent this time of year. You're usually looking at Matthew or Luke, maybe the Old Testament, but you guys have been asking for us to look at Hebrews for a while, so this is your shot. We're going to look at the book of Hebrews, but I want to explain a little bit as to why Hebrews before we actually look at Hebrews chapter one this morning. And to do that, I need to tell you one of my favorite things about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus. Let's look at a map. So, and I don't want to single out any individual religion around our world. But most of the time in the history of mankind, faith has been very much bound to culture. There's been this sense that if I um, believe in a certain God or believe in a certain series of truths, then I'm also buying into a worldview that's shaped by an individual people and their traditions and their ideas and their ethnicity and all of these different things. One of those most amazing things I find about Christianity is that Jesus came into this world in a cultural context. He did not come as this sort of neutral person floating above the ground that we somehow um, can think of him to be. And yet, when he sent forth his disciples into the world to tell everyone about him. Just as the kids were singing this morning, he didn't say, go make everybody Jewish. He didn't say, go make everybody this new variant of Judaism. There was a beauty to how the gospel went forth. Some of you may know, you know, the gospel begins here in the Middle East as a Middle Eastern faith but very quickly, it moves both to mid-Asia and also to Africa. There's incredible theological growth in both of those areas. Europe would never know Jesus 
without North Africa knowing Jesus. And of course, as many of us know culturally, Christianity then goes from Europe all over to North America, South America, comes back around to East Asia, Australia, other places. The gospel does all of this because God loves culture. God loves people. He made us in our beautiful diversity and desires that all of us would come to know him as we are. Now, given our sinful and broken hearts, we don't necessarily stay that way. I hope we don't stay that way. But God loves us in our story. The gospel does four things to a culture when it kind of comes in and connects to a culture. The first thing it does is it celebrates some stuff. Imagine for a moment you have been invited over to coffee at a friend's house, and this friend happens to have young children. You'll likely go move into their house and sit down at the kitchen counter, and you will see drawings on the refrigerator. Now, obviously, these drawings are not Monet or Van Gogh quality, and yet your friend is proud of what their kid has made. God is proud of who he has made us to be. And there is an aspect of the gospel that comes in and delights in, shows God's delight in the creativity and the relationship and the growth and the technology and all of the things that God's creation, humanity, has done. I had a, a wonderful seminary professor years and years ago who would travel the world, and when he would go to different cultures, one of his favorite kind of games to play, questions to ask, was to ask people of different cultures what aspect of, they, of their culture did they expect to be present in the new creation. When Jesus comes back and everything gets made new, what are we going to be eating? How are we going to be dancing? What music are we going to be listening to? It was wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I wanted to start with this one because we actually jump usually too often to this second one first, which is that the gospel does come into culture and critique culture as well. Obviously, the gospel is about God and his holiness his power, his glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. God does not like sin. Sin's literal definition is that which is against God's will. And so the gospel does come in, and it begins to shine light in dark places within culture, and it questions why we do things and what aspects of the things that we do are not glorifying to God. The third thing this is less what the gospel does, but what is done to it, sadly, is it's often co-opted. Because we're still broken people, and we don't just suddenly receive the gospel and shed our own brokenness fully, and then we are perfect, and thus our culture is perfect, and thus the world is perfect. No, there is this already not yet that comes in. And so we see in many, many different places throughout history God doing incredible things within a culture, and yet also some of the brokenness of that culture seeping back into the church and seeping back into people's understanding, false understanding of what they think Jesus is all about. 
But there's a reverse of that as well. The gospel comes in and it redeems. And it tells the story of God within that culture. Because as these things have kind of a dance, as, an, as they have an interplay, as God celebrates some things and critiques other things and shows us where we have fallen short, but also delights in us, what we see is God beginning to show us who he is like, what he has done in Jesus, often using the very aspects of our own humanity, the image of God inside of us to do it. He speaks out of his word in this way. The reason I want to give you this framework as we get started is because the book of Hebrews is a, a special book. In some ways, it is a difficult book. It's a difficult book in some ways because, one, we don't know who the writer is. We kind of get that issue on the table right away. We don't know who the writer is. We're not as concerned about that as that may sound. It just doesn't give us as much context. We know that the writer is uh, very eloquent. We know that the individual likely was Jewish. They have a huge knowledge, knowledge of Judaism. They have a huge knowledge as well of what is called Hellenistic thought or Greek and Roman thought. Um, so like Paul, except the big joke is, is Whoever this guy is, he writes a lot better than Paul in Greek. So we just kind of have to deal with that. Um, but he, what we do know that Hebrews is written, who it's written to. Hebrews was written to a group, a group of like-minded people, Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And these Hellenistic Jewish Christians were wrestling with their faith, and they were beginning to feel pressure about their faith. Here's the thing, though. They weren't feeling the type of pressure that we usually associate with persecution of Christians in the early church. Our mind immediately goes to lions and people being beheaded and people being forced to recant and that sort of thing. All of that did happen, but it wouldn't happen in great numbers for another hundred years or so um, after the book of Hebrews was written. The pressure that the... Uh, believers who were hearing this were feeling, what they were experiencing was actually in some ways even more insidious. They were simply feeling the pressure to act normal. To act normal. You see, as much as we play up, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this because it's, it's true in just a minute, how different Christianity is from anything and everything else. In other respects, because of these forces that allow Christianity to come into culture and redeem it and transform it, the Jewish Christians that Hebrews are written to are not that different from all of their neighbors. Likely due to culture as much as anything, they would have still kept most of the dietary laws of the other Jews around them. Many of them at the time would have still gone to synagogue as well as to participate in the early church. They would have still had friends. They would have still gone to the same co-op groups and still played, you know, rec basketball with the other people. I mean, they kind of would have been Northeastern Atlantans. Think about it. I mean, just like us. 
So because of that, it was actually very easy. All they had to do to stop feeling that pressure was to make one little change. Just stop making Jesus the center of everything. Go along with your life. Live kind of the way you're living anyway, except without Jesus. And yet somehow that Jesus click is radical and changes everything about who they are. I think that is why the book of Hebrews is so important for us as well today. Because I make that Northeastern Atlanta joke lightly, but also not. And we still live in, in the South. We still live in Georgia. We probably actually live in one of the most, I know this doesn't feel it, but it's, it's true, Christian-friendly American metro environments. Like, we're in one of the few metro cities where, especially above a certain age group, people don't look at you, like, psychotically for going to church. They might cock, you know, one eye a little bit and just wonder about your church or something like that, but there's still this element of social acceptability for us. And so it's actually very, very easy to stop following Jesus for any of us. It doesn't cost us a lot right now. It might one day, it might for our children, especially for our grandchildren, but it's actually pretty easy for us to blend into the background today. I think it's also very easy, and the writer of Hebrews doesn't go into this as much, but we can. It's also very easy to take the opposite approach, right? And to become belligerent and to become angry and to become loud, to take this position that says we refuse to blend into the background and so we are going to scream from the rooftops and go tell it on the mountain that our kids beautifully sang this morning stops becoming about the gospel, but it becomes about setting ourselves apart and being angry. What Hebrews does is incredible and different, and it's why I think it's important for us to look at it at any time of year, but especially during Advent. It helps us see that what we are called to as Christians is not a middle ground between being active and different and kind of being quiet and friendly. It's not some middle ground that I think our society pulls us in one direction or another and just says we're lukewarm. It's not that. It's a third way. It's a different perspective entirely that says there is a way for you and I to not simply be faithful, but to be radically different, but also radically different where we are in the people among the people, in the jobs, in the neighborhoods, in the hobbies, in the everything that God has already called us to be, we can both be neighborly and completely and totally new. That's what Hebrews calls us to. That's what God calls us to. And what we get to see in Hebrews is in some ways, a model of all of these things, seeing 
the writer of Hebrews tell the story of the gospel to this very specific culture to remind them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to give them language to tell others. That's what we need to do too. We have to, as a church, as a faith, be able to, from God's word and from what we learn in our world, tell our story, hear it from God and tell our story in the good news, in language that encourages us and also sends us out to our neighbors. You'll notice we haven't yet done a scripture reading for this week, and there was a reason for that. Um, we're going to do it now. But before you, we do it, either pay more attention than you normally do to the screens or go ahead and open your worship guide back up because we're going to do one thing slightly different. We're using a liturgy this morning, a liturgical response, which we usually do to the speaking of God's word, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Um, we're actually going to use one that um, our students in IDX, our student ministry upstairs, use each and every week when we study scripture. So I'm going to read for us and then stay just a little more alert than normal so that you can follow along. This is the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is God's word. This is our story. Let's pray for a minute. Jesus, again, thank you as we look at your word here in kind of the middle of a sermon rather than at the beginning. We nonetheless ask that it, more than my words, more than anything else today, would speak to us because of you, Holy Spirit. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, the moment I show you this picture, you know, or most of you, have a specific fanfare pop into your brain, a specific music. If you don't know, this is the opening line to the 1977 film Star Wars. You know, tiny little film, not much cultural impact. Um, no, it, it, of course, is massive and is a huge multi, multi, multi-billion dollar franchise. 
My dad, though, does tell me stories of when he saw Star Wars in the theaters for the first time. And some of you may have had that experience as well, and it blew him away. Now, it blew him away for millions of reasons. Great story, wonderful uh, effects. I've lost some of you already. It's okay. Follow me on this. Most music with respect to film film scores are actually still very much influenced by both classical music and Broadway musical traditions. Now these traditions begin slowly and they ramp up and they build and they layer themes upon one another. This is why the Harry Potter music starts out with this little kind of twinkle and then begins and keeps moving. It's why most classical pieces start Likewise, and then build, and we add kind of certain sections in over time, and suddenly the bass builds, and the drums build, and finally brass comes in, and you hear this loud bursting, highlighting a climactic moment. Not so with Star Wars. It blows your speakers out from the very beginning of its time. Hebrews does the same thing. Again, I've already told you, we, we don't have an author. We don't have Paul's normal, Paul and Timothy, servants of God. Now, and I, I love Paul. Come on, I love Paul. But, but, but everyone knows that's what's coming in many of the New Testament letters. And it's friendly and it's wonderful. It's not what we get here. Here's what we get instead. What we get instead is the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1, one are probably one of the most packed theological expressions of who Jesus is anywhere in the Bible. If you are a language geek, they are also a single sentence. So half of what we just read is just a massive run-on talking over and over and over again about one thing, Jesus. And this is what it says. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Scripture calls Jesus the son, the word of God, whom he appointed the heir of all things, the heir of creation. Romans 8 goes into great detail about this. It talks about him creating the world. Colossians 1.15 talks about this. It describes him as the glory of God, as the image of God, going back to Genesis and to Exodus, the sustainer of the world, the purifier for sin, some of the very last verses of the Old Testament, a reference to that, and is now sitting, as Mark 16 says, at the right hand of God, and then develops much further a theme throughout the next few verses that even the angels are subject to him. Now, in our culture, if you were to kind of set up a list of, we might call them defeater beliefs, kind of what are things that people struggle with about Jesus, I'm not sure what would be on your list. I might think about um, LGBTQ issues. I might think about issues of kind of why God allows sin and death. I might think of uh, the history of the church. I might think about science. Those are all important conversations to have. They're conversations that we hope here at InTown you feel safe talking about. 
And one of the reasons we want this to be a place where that kind of conversation is safe to talk about is because while it seems like what I just read was very safe theologically, I don't think most of you are going to you know, reject the faith over Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. These were actually some of the hot-button issues that the Hebrews would have, the, the, the listeners of Hebrews would have wrestled through. Like I said, it was very easy for them to blend into the background until they suddenly start talking about the Messiah being different than all of their Jewish neighbors expected him to be. Suddenly, we're not talking about a Messiah who's going to come and liberate Israel from the Romans anymore. We're talking about a Messiah who is not a man at all, who, while he is Jewish, transcends Judaism because he actually is the progenitor of the entire world, which logically actually means God loves those Romans who are hurting us just like he loves us. This passage goes into great detail about how Jesus is the heir, not just Israel. How Jesus is the purifier, not the sacrificial system. And how Jesus sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This actually connects to a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that by this point, ironically, some Jewish theologians actually had started to write about as well and say, did we get this wrong? Have we, have we missed something? Is the Messiah just supposed to be a man? Because that doesn't seem to gel with this passage and this passage and this passage. And that is why he goes into this long expose, and it'll pop up again in the book of Hebrews about angels. Because in Jewish thought at the time, God is God, but the closest thing they have to any other divine power is God's use of his messengers, these angels. How could a man be like that, much less a man who dies? The book of Hebrews redeems and tells the story over again of the nation of Israel showing them who Jesus is and why Jesus actually answers the desperate questions of their heart. Friends, Christianity does that for us as well. We don't have time to go into all things, but consider just for a moment the fact that our culture stands on ideas of freedom, on ideas of dignity, on ideas of human rights. What is amazing is that even, even secular philosophers will point out that these things don't exist in a culture without 2,000 years of Christian thought infecting the world. The very idea of human rights, even as it is being championed in the 1700s by Frenchmen who are devout atheists, is nonetheless centralized only if God has actually made us, if we actually have a shared humanity and a shared purpose and a shared meaning. 
ideas of civil rights, ideas of women's rights, ideas of sexuality, even perspectives that are against Christianity itself in many places do not exist without Christianity. We have a story that God speaks into and says, I'm here. I've always been here. I am not scared of what your kids are posting online. I am not scared of what you are reading in the news. I am not scared about politics or the state of the environment or the world or whatever. I am here in your midst. And so, really just one point this morning. When you and I celebrate Christmas, when we engage in Advent, when we look at the language verse 6 here in Hebrews uses when he, God, brings the firstborn into the world, do we interpret that as Jesus coming into a hypothetical, historical construct that looks pretty similar to the nativity scene that we put up on our shelf, which fits in a nice box. Mine fits in a very large box because Chrissy loves Christmas decorations. But it fits in there. It's really, really easy to put back in there and put in our basement. Or do we see Jesus coming into the world as Jesus coming into our world? The world you wake up into. The world you read the Washington Journal about. The, 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 the world that you listen to talk radio about. The world that you struggle in. Is Jesus here? If Jesus is here, if he is real, there are two things that are true, and it's what I want to leave us with. Number one, if he is here, if he is not a hypothetical construct, then all these things are true about him. And he demands our loyalty, our love, our devotion, or consideration, at least. It's, again, very easy not only to shrink the world down, but to shrink during this season him down into little baby Jesus. But here's the other thing that's just as true. The writer of Hebrews begins showing Jesus being the center, not as a theological hurdle that says for you to be a follower of Jesus, you must jump this high. It's not what he's doing. Again, remember, this is not first and foremost an apologetic text anyway. First and foremost, it's two Christians already. <clears throat> the reason he does this is because if these things are true about Jesus, I want to show you something else. If those things were true about Jesus, this is also true of you. If Jesus is actually the word of God, 
First John tells us the word of God abides in us. If Jesus is actually the heir of God, Galatians 3 says we are actually heirs with Christ. If Jesus is the creator of the world, then we as his children are caretakers of that world. If Jesus is the glory of God, then we literally have seen the same glory of God that showed up to Moses on the mountain. If Jesus is the image of God, 1 Corinthians 11 says, so are we. If Jesus is the purifier of the world, then we are purified and have the opportunity to take that message into the world. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, Ephesians tells us we are actually seated with him. If Jesus is actually superior to the angels, Peter writes that we actually get to know mysteries that angels long to look into. I was raised on a brand of Christianity that I am very grateful for in many ways. But one of the ways that I've wrestled with, and I've talked about this before openly, is that I was kind of raised with this idea that if you were a really serious Christian, that you went off and became a missionary somewhere. And I love our missionaries. But it was the only way to be a Christian. So I grew up with this longing to go move to some country whose name I could never pronounce and go tell people who had never heard of the gospel before about Jesus. And then Jesus planted me not in a country far off to tell people who had never heard of him that. He planted me in college and then planted me in seminary and then planted me in the West and then planted me here in Atlanta and he planted me as a husband, and he planted me as a dad. And he's done the same with you. The reason I think Hebrews is so wonderful, especially at this time of year, is because we get to celebrate Jesus coming into our world, him being all of this, and because of that, all of this being true, exactly in the life you were already living. What does it mean for an heir of creation with Christ to walk into your office every morning? What does it mean that the image of God's glory that blew someone to death when the Ark of the Covenant was touched wakes up with a crying baby at night in your house? How does someone who is seated with Christ on high take a test in college? This changes everything. Jesus being born into our world, being who he is, and changing everything about who we are allows us to live in our real world and also for it to be radically, radically different. Let's pray. Jesus, would you give us... humility? 
encouragement, boldness, quietness, whatever you know we need this morning. We love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.